Welcome to the Veterinary Career Services Podcast, a show for veterinarians, veterinary specialists, and hospital management. Join industry expert and president of VCS, Laura Anderson, as she interviews seasoned and accomplished veterinarians that share their paths and provide insights that can help professionals achieve their career goals. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jeff Peck, who is presently a surgeon at Veterinary Care and Specialty Group in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Dr. Peck has accomplished great things throughout his career, so I'm thrilled to talk with him. He was the chair of the Board of Regents of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons from 2017 to 2018, after serving as the president of ACBS from 2016 to 2017. He has chaired and served on numerous committees for the college, including the Program Compliance Committee, the Examination Committee, the Resident Training Task Force, the Residency Strategic Planning Committee, and the Resident Credentialing Committee. Dr. Peck is also heavily involved with the Joint Replacement Fellowship. He has published a textbook on orthopedic surgery and numerous chapters with a focus on joint placement. He was the orthopedic section editor for another book and was also an associate editor for Small Animal Orthopedics, Compendium of Continuing Education for the Practicing Veterinarian. In addition to these roles, Dr. Peck is a major in the U.S. Army Reserve. He went to veterinary school at Tufts University, completed an internship at Animal Referral Center in Fort Pierce, Florida, and then completed a surgery residency at Iowa State University. In 1997, he joined Affiliated Veterinary Specialists in Maitland, where he remained for over 20 years. Dr. Peck, thank you for speaking with me today. Happy to be here. Thank you. I'm looking forward to hearing more about your career and your various roles with ACVS. So to start, you've accomplished so much. So starting with president of ACBS. Well, I, I guess it's more a matter of you know, having the desire to do a variety of things. Um, mm-hmm. And then the how just kind of grows out of that. Um, from the end of my residency, I, part of me wanted to stay in academia, but in order to be near some family, um, I accepted a position in the Orlando area, as you mentioned it, um, affiliated veterinary specialists. Um, and, but I didn't want to just disappear in private practice. I, there were things that I wanted to accomplish with my career, um, including being involved in ACBS and continuing to publish the best quality research that at least I was able to do. Um, and so really just carving out time for those things and having the willingness to kind of do more than just, you know, go, go to work, do my job, go home, and that's it. I mean, certainly you know, family time is very important as well. Um, but I think I was able to strike a good balance. My employer was pretty reasonable about um, giving me the time to do research, also giving me the time to serve on ACBS committees. But really, that came out of my vacation time for the most part. So it was really a matter of, am I willing to give that part of uh, my time um, to the things that I wanted to accomplish. And for me, the answer was yes. It's not going to be a yes for everybody. Mm-hmm. So as you were serving on the committees, I, I guess you started to head toward the, the presidency. Well, in general, it, it kind of turns out if you serve on one or two or three committees and you don't mess up too badly, eventually they're going to ask you if you want to uh, be nominated for a uh, a regent position. So that actually came before being a president. I was a regent on the board of regents for ACBS, and that's a three, really four-year position. Um, And then after that, ultimately, anyone who served as a regent who's willing to be nominated will eventually be nominated for president, once again, unless you've done something bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I threw a lot of my energy into doing as good a job as I could on the committees. The one that was really most time-consuming was the examination committee. But honestly, for you know anyone that's, regardless of what specialty you're in, if you serve on uh, an examination committee for a specialty college, that's going to be the best continuing education you can have in your entire career. Um, I learned more in you know my 
three, four years on the examination committee than I did really in any other um, continuing education that I've attended. And also, you know, through all the committee work, made lifelong friends um, with people who I never really would have crossed paths with, specifically my large animal counterparts. I'm a small animal surgeon. And so the, you know, the equine surgeons, we really don't cross paths with that much. Maybe people who are into regenerative medicine, uh, stem cell therapy, that sort of thing. You know, there's a lot of crossover between small and large animal, but very little unless if you're not involved in that, uh, which I'm not. Um, and I've made some wonderful friends uh, and learned from them, uh, you know, even though we, we are, our practices really are very divergent. And so you were on a lot of resident focused committees. Correct. Yes. Did that involve a lot of hands-on with a resident or was more overseeing their programs and their credentialing? Well, at the practice where I was, uh, affiliated mm-hmm. veterinary specialist, I was, you know, sometimes I was a uh, an advisor to a, to eight, to one specific resident. But for the last, I want to say, 15 years of my time there, maybe 12 years, something like that, um, I was the residency program director there. So from that standpoint, I was very hands-on with with our residents um, Mm -hmm. and including mentoring their research and trying to prepare them for the board examination as well, um, because that's a huge hoop to have to jump through. And given my committee experience, you know, I think I was able to do a better job of mentoring them uh, toward the ability to, to pass the examination. Now that should never be, the sole focus of a residency by any stretch, mm-hmm. uh, because the goal is to become a well-rounded, you know, strong surgeon, um, not someone who can just pass the test. Uh, and I don't think I ever focused it that way, but I was able to give tips uh, and help along the way that I like to think provided them an advantage, not an unfair advantage, but an advantage over someone working with a surgeon who didn't have a lot of familiarity with the expectations um, that would allow them to be successful in passing the exam. Um, But uh, everything that I did and tried to continue to do uh, with the ACVS is always uh, with the goal of making sure that residency training programs are high quality. That doesn't mean it's going to make everybody happy all the time. as many friends as I've made, I'm sure there were a fair number of people who did not care for some of the decisions that I may have been a part of. Now, it was never a situation where I had the ability to make a unilateral decision on anything. It was always you know, uh, multiple people and a majority within a committee, even as chair or president. I mean, that didn't give me any more vote than anybody else on, the com- on those committees or on the board. Mm-hmm. Looking back and after working with all these residents, is there one or two key factors to success that you could name? Well, I mean, success as a surgeon and success in passing. Yeah. Both. Well, I guess in terms of first things first, then I guess in terms of passing the exam, Mm -hmm. one thing that I would always tell my residents, you know, on day one or even before day one, if I was chatting with them, you know, after the match and, um, talking to them about what my expectations were and what they should expect from me. You know, I would always say there are two things you should never do, in my opinion, after finishing your residency. You should never go out and be somewhere where you're going to be the solo surgeon. Um, if you do that, it's not long before you're believing everything that you say because there, that you yourself are saying because there's no one there to call you on it. Um, and the other thing was to not open your own practice at least for six years if, if someone has that as one of their goals. Um, I think it is, and this is a strong opinion, and it is an opinion, it's not a fact, but I think it is virtually impossible to grow in the way that you need to grow as a surgeon and own a practice and, uh, own a practice and grow a practice simultaneously. And I think the same thing goes for being a solo surgeon. And you know, I don't think it is possible to truly grow the way one needs to grow as a surgeon, as a solo practitioner. 
you need someone to bounce ideas off and you need them to be there. You're not someone who, oh, I'm going to text one of my resident mates or I'm going to text one of my mentors and send them the radiographs. You need someone who can come in and look over your shoulder and say, boy, you're really screwing that up. Or, yeah, that's that's good, but you, you know, here's a tip to make this a little bit easier or more effective or more efficient. And it's those who are unwilling to take that time to work in that type of practice who feel that, no, I just want to go out and make money or I want to go out and start my own business, especially people who maybe started a residency a little bit later on in their career and don't feel that they have, quote unquote, the luxury of taking those few years. Now, and and personally, I don't think it's ever a great idea to be a solo practitioner, but that's a choice. And I think after a period of time, it's not unreasonable, but most of those folks are going to kind of limit the scope of their practice to some extent. Um, and it's just a, you know, that's an individual decision, you know, you have to make, but I would counsel strongly against doing that very early in, in one's career. That makes sense. And I, you know, a lot of residents that I work with, certainly now I'm hearing more than ever, they want to work with two surgeons, not just one. Yeah. And I would agree with that. And, and I would get the best guarantee that you can, if you want to work with someone that if it is only one other surgeon that you're not going to get there. And then the day after you arrive, they're on vacation for six weeks. Right. right. Or Or that you have non overlapping schedules. Exactly. And in many cases you might. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, there are a lot of residents who um, will be listening. So I know that's helpful advice for them. And, and another thing that I would also throw out there, if there is any interest, and I think it makes a huge difference in the degree of professional satisfaction that you'll have long term. You know, a lot of people, and I hate to talk about generational differences, but there's so much emphasis on, you know, me time that people don't see the the professional and mental benefits of actually giving additional time to your specialty and how that can make you enjoy your career more in the long run. So while it may take away some me time being involved with either research or involvement in the specialty college or both, um, while it may suck away some of that me time, I really do believe that it provides for a longer lasting enjoyment of your career. Um, and that's a decision you've, you've got to make, you know, and it, it's not going to just happen. Opportunities may just happen. And in, it's one of those things where if you say no to opportunities once or twice, they may not keep showing up. Um, and so I'd say, you know, give those things a chance. Don't assume that if you're in private practice that you cannot be of tremendous benefit to your specialty college, whether that's surgery or medicine or derm or whatever. Um, you can be a tremendous benefit. Um, and the same thing goes for research. You can do good quality research um, from private practice. Now, some of it may be that you have to partner with an academic institution or partner with an engineer or both. Um, but don't assume that I'm in private practice, so I can't do research. You, you can do that. And you can also be fully involved in, in the specialty college as well. I believe you were involved with some clinical trials. Well, I mean, some clinical trials, yes, but also some, you know, benchtop type research, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mostly related to joint replacement, you know, over time and through uh, my involvement in joint replacement, you know, and, and being only a couple hours away from University of Florida, uh, you know, I developed friendships with Antonio Pazzi and Stan Kim, who Antonio is no longer at the University of Florida, but, you know, did some good quality research with them, you know, one on, you know, uh, protection against uh, fracture uh, following joint replacement surgery, another one um, on what's called dorsal acetabular rim loss, which may lose some of your listeners, sorry, uh, <laughs> regarding total hip replacement and, you know, with Denny Marcel and Little uh, you know, and uh, computer-assisted navigation um, in joint replacement. So it's not just people coming to you. If you have an idea and you started developing relationships, don't assume someone won't want to work with you because you're in private practice either. Um, 
you know, I've met some great people, worked with some people that who I really feel are 10 times smarter than I am, but they never treat me that way uh, and have you know thoroughly in, enjoyed that aspect of my career. That's very valuable insight. Um, and I think a lot of people would probably assume what you've just stated, that I'm in private practice. Um, I don't have time without considering the long-term benefits and the short-term benefits. Did you start out as soon as your residency realizing the importance of those endeavors? I don't know if I realized what effect they would have from that standpoint of the importance. I knew that I didn't want to just disappear into just being uh, where I was and not having any involvement beyond that. I wasn't quite sure how it could develop. And you know, two different things happened. One, you know, in terms of my involvement with ACVS, I happened to work with someone who was um, involved with ACVS, Jamie Bella, who's currently department head um, at Auburn University. Um, but I worked with him uh, for a brief period of time at uh, Affiliated Veterinary Specialists. You know, he, I had expressed to him my interest and, you know, I believe he played a role in my first committee appointment, not necessarily saying, hey, put this guy on there, but at least vouching for my work ethic. And it's and there's certainly ways of doing that, even if you're not working with someone who's involved. Absolutely, there are ways. And and it's, you know, if you don't get it the first time, don't be discouraged. Um, and in terms of research, really, that didn't happen until, you know, our practice was approached by a company that was, you know, going to start putting out this new hip replacement. And I was naive enough to think, hey, you know, I might, I, I should probably try this. And, you know, there were some bumpy roads early on and a lot of pain on my part and probably some of my patients' parts. Um, but that provided kind of an inroads to start getting more involved in the research uh, side of things. But it was because I said yes to a couple of things. It just then opened other doors. Um, and, and really, I, I I can't stress enough how I feel like that has allowed me to really enjoy all aspects of my career and to stay excited about doing surgery. And different people want different things out of their careers. And if it's financial success, and if that's your number one, I mean, there's a lot of different things you could have done. Um, I mean, being a veterinary surgeon can be you know lucrative. Uh, I've never... I've always been paid straight salary, so I've never had to wonder whether I'm advocating for something because it's going to help increase my income. Um, you know, I try to you know, always make sure I'm recommending what I think is in the best interest of the patient and the client. Um, but it, my goal that was always to just be good at what I do. Um, I was always afraid that, hey, in 15 or 20 years, am I going to burn out? You know, what am I going to, and what do I do then? So if I'm not a practice owner and I start to burn out, what am I going to do? Um, practice ownership, the, that opportunity didn't come to me. That would have been something I would have had to have said, you know, five or 10 years into my last position. Okay. I think it's time for me to start a business of my own. But, but by that time, I really was enjoying what I was doing and I saw how relatively unhappy management was and the practice owner, relatively speaking, from the standpoint that they weren't really doing any surgery um, and, you know, and, a, a, and eventually zero surgery um, and spent probably 80% of their time dealing with personnel management. And I felt like that wasn't for me. Now, have I had regrets because I see the degree of financial success that that can bring, sure. But there's a there's a middle road. You don't have to do do it the way that I did it. But I'm, I'm sure there's a middle ground there if that if that's what you want to do. And then other for other people, obviously it's academia, and academia is you know, a, a wonderful endeavor. Um, it, there's obviously advantages and disadvantages, um, just like private practice. And then there are those who are in academia and then go on to administration and, and then, you know, work like my employers in the past have where they don't really do any clinical work. They're purely administrative. In academia, I see a lot of benefit to that in terms of seeing how you can affect the future of, uh, veterinarians. 
Although, obviously, with COVID, that's got to be about the most stressful position to be in right now, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell me more about the uh, Joint Replacement Fellowship? Um, yeah, so the ACBS currently has three, and Joint Replacement will be the fourth fellowship. Others are um, oncology, maxillofacial surgery, um, and minimally invasive uh, surgery. So joint replacement is the fourth fellowship. And so what that's going to entail is training, obviously, beyond residency training. Um, and it's a bit different from one standpoint that it's a fellowship that is basically focusing on really one or two, at most three specific surgical procedures, primarily hip replacement. And then you know, additionally, elbow uh, and knee, and probably a smattering of custom other joints. Um, but realistically, right now, you know, primarily hip, secondary knee and and elbow, um, just in terms of the numbers that are being done. Um, one of the problems is that people are so afraid of joint replacement that so few people actually do them. Um, and because of that fear, and including board-certified specialists, there's very few that do any significant number of them. Uh, and it's always been the fear of complications that has led the desire to not do the procedure, or lack of desire to do it is probably a better way of saying it. Um, and you know, uh, several of my colleagues were saying, you know, how many people, how many surgeons under the age of 40 are doing more than 15 or 20 joint replacements a year. And it's less than a handful. Um, and so who's going to train the further generations? And you know, we're advancing so tremendously in other aspects of medicine and surgery. But my fear is that, or and fear of others, that joint replacement just isn't going to grow because there's a an abnormal degree of fear um, over performing the procedure. Um, and there's a tremendous potential caseload um, that really is not being offered the procedure or is being offered it in a way that sort of discourages it. So if I'm deathly afraid of doing a hip replacement and it's because I'm deathly afraid of the risk for complications, I'm going to pass on that feeling to my client and they are less likely to pursue it. Even if I'm willing to send them to someone who does a lot. If my fear is that, oh, there's a high complication rate, client's going to read that to some extent. Um, and I, that fear, the respect for the procedure is well-founded, you know, that it's not something you just jump into and it's not something you're going to be proficient at from day one, even if you have several years of experience. It's something you have to do quite a number of. And you also... I would have to say more so than other orthopedic procedures, you probably have to have a greater understanding of the mechanics, you know, the biomechanics behind it um, to be consistently successful at it. Um, and not you know, a lot of people are less interested in that. It's more show me how to do it. Uh, just show me how to get from point A to point B not necessarily to understand all the ins and outs. And not that the ins and outs of joint replacement are that difficult to grasp. I'm not a genius, and I grasp them well enough to have consistent outcomes. Um, and so, you know, the important thing about the Joint Replacement Fellowship is that we have enough locations offering fellowships so that we can grow the number of surgeons who are proficient at the procedure. Um, and so where most other fellowships are one year, the joint replacement fellowship will be, will have the ability to expand to as many as five years in order to get the case numbers, um, required to reach proficiency. And in addition to the fact that it will allow people to, let's say we had another surgeon at our practice and he wanted to do a joint replacement fellowship, but we couldn't really justify having this person there full time, just doing joint replacement, because it's not like you do them. There are two or three people in the world I know who do, who do them almost every day. 
Um, but the vast majority of us don't do them every single day. And so there's not enough, at least right now, of a caseload where you could say, okay, we're going to do a joint replacement fellowship. You're going to get all the requirements in a year. And so you can have someone who's working as an associate at that practice. Some days they're in the role of a fellow um, or fellow candidate. Some days they're in the role of staff surgeon. And so it's a little bit less onerous in order to be able to uh, meet the requirements and the time allotted. And you can you know, still be working during that period of time. I would think that would make it more attractive. I, that, that's our hope um, and also more feasible. Because if we only have two or three places doing a fellowship, we're never going to grow the number of surgeons who are doing them. Exactly. Right. Who taught you to do joint replacements? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a, I think a good example of why it would have been beneficial to have the fellowship. Um, so I did only three or four during my residency. Um, certainly not enough to even understand the, the science or biomechanics behind it, uh, adequately. Um, when the practice that I was at was approached, um, myself and one of the other surgeons had an interest, you know, we, did five cases supervised by um, the surgeon and engineer who developed the procedure that we were doing, the system that we were using. Uh, and then after that, we did our first 50 after that, we always did together. Um, and, you know, depending on where we were standing, we would kind of alternate who did what part. Um, you know, after... 50 or 60 cases, the other surgeon decided, you know, he was the practice owner and he decided he was stepping back from surgery anyway. But by that time I had enough comfort with it. So if you're, if you're trying to do it as a surgeon in private practice by yourself, I mean, you don't want to do it completely by yourself. You want someone else there so you can check each other. Um, you know, but from that standpoint, that makes it a lot harder. Um, you know, especially in if you look at a world where the overwhelming majority of people are paid on production, you have two surgeons in the same surgery, especially, you know, this may be unfair, but in a corporate practice, how do they determine who's getting the credit for that? And once again, that wasn't something I, 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 I had the luxury of not having to worry about that. And that is a luxury and um, obviously is, it seems to be a passion of yours. It, it is. It, I don't know that it was initially. As I learned more and realized how little I knew, especially when I started doing it and thought, oh man, I'm lucky or my, my patients initially were unlucky. Um, but it makes me even more you know, desire to keep people from having to go through that because it wasn't, it's not necessary to go through it in that way. It could be a much more positive growth experience, particularly with a fellowship rather than learning by, I mean, you're always going to learn by making mistakes, but if you're in an, a learning environment, it's, it's quite different. Um, and, and I, I would not suggest that the way that I grew up through, you know, my, uh, joint replacement experience is the way that I would want to see people doing it. I don't think that's in the best interest of the client or the best interest of the patient. Um, I think, you know, a more formal training program is certainly in the best interest of the client and the patient and the surgeon. I didn't realize that joint replacement was, seems like it's almost at a critical juncture right now as far as what the future holds. Yeah, and I, I think that the fellowship can make a huge difference in that. And you know, my hope is that I can host one at the practice where I am now, um, sometime in the next two or three years. Um, and I always, you know, I've been in, I'm in Chattanooga, so I'm pretty close to, uh, to several different universities, um, and have reached out to faculty at each place and said, if your residents ever want to come. Uh, and scrub on total hips. They're welcome anytime. Um, you know, I'm happy to let you know when I'm, you know, each time I'm doing one, give you a schedule and say, you know, as many as two can scrub in on any one case. Uh, because I, I, people who don't get to see a lot of them are going to be, again, even more uh, fearful of jumping in. That's a wonderful offer, a gracious offer. Well, it's also selfish because I don't have quite the number of staff uh, currently. And so it's nice to have additional hands. 
but that's that's not my motive. That wasn't my motive. I promise. Right. No, exactly. <laughs> and, and I also don't have res- interns or residents at the current location, and that kind of helps keep giving me the, the taste of it as well. Actually, I was speaking with a resident last week who I know would love to to maybe take you up on that offer. <laughs> well, that'd be great. So was that something you were working on when you were president of ACVS? Um, I didn't initiate it, though. That probably would not have been appropriate um, because okay. that would be a little bit self-serving. No, it was the idea really two people separately kind of came up with it. Uh, one is Denny Marcel and Little, who's a very close friend, um, as well as Bill Liska, um, who I also consider a friend and and and. They're both extremely passionate about joint replacement surgery. Um, they separately kind of um, had mentioned to me a desire to start that. Um, and it, and the move toward the development certainly grew dur- during the time that I was president and chair of the board. Um, but my direct involvement in being part of organizing it, um, I really didn't do until after I was off the board. Um, and I'm not, you know, running it, uh, by any stretch at this point, actually, Denny Marcel and Little is, uh, is leading that charge, but it's, it's pretty well formed. Uh, you know, the next step is for people to submit their application to be founding fellows, which means that you would have done, I forget what the numbers are. I think it was a minimum of 200 cases, but I don't remember exactly. I, I apologize, you know, and have a certain number of joint replacement specific, uh, research publications, um, that sort of thing. So the requirements are set for that. Um, and then once those are chosen, then those individuals can potentially form uh, fellowship programs. So when would you like the first fellows to to start? In 2020? Um, so potentially as early as 2021. Okay. I don't know how many people will be prepared, especially at academic institutions. Then you have to find funding, you know, to pay that person. Um, so I, I, I'm hesitant right now, at least for me personally, to look beyond being accepted as a founding fellow and and having initial conversations with my employer about is there a way we can develop this uh, to fit our practice. That that's for us in particular. I, but I do think that the first fellowships will, at least a couple, will get off the ground in twenty twenty one, and it is my true hope that it will would expand to eight or ten uh, programs within a couple of years. What was it like to be president of ACVS? I enjoyed it quite a lot. Once again, you know, getting to meet with folks who and, and become friends with, with folks that I would otherwise not have. Um, really cross paths with. Um, I did, when I compare it to uh, Spencer Johnston, who is currently chair of the board, um, I find myself you know, thinking how lucky I was because you know they're having to deal with uh, canceling the annual uh, conference because of COVID, trying to scramble to figure out how do we do CE, and then even more tremendous challenges of how to administer the certification examinations, the two phases of the certification examinations. Um, I just can't imagine how many sleepless nights I would have had 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 that happened while I was president or chair. Uh, they've done a tremendous job. I mean, we had some issues that we faced. It, it was mostly a matter of responding to concerns of the membership. And trying to develop, you know, new initiatives to help with the growth uh, of the college. Uh, for me, one of the biggest things, you know, even from the time I first was on the board, um, was trying to maintain the engagement of our new, you know, dipl- diplomates. Uh, you know, trying to encourage them to be involved um, on. on uh, committees, uh, certainly to attend, you know, the annual conference or other continuing education offerings of the college, um, and and just trying to help foster continued collegiality within the college uh, at a time when so much is online and so much is distance learning. 
Um, obviously, COVID makes that so much more challenging right now as well. Um, but it was it was a wonderful experience. Um, you know, my time on the board, my time as president and, and chair, um, it was less demanding actually than my time on the examination committee in terms of time commitment. Um, but you know, we felt that we were having a lot of impact on the future directions of the college, uh, you know, and trying to develop consensus uh, within the board so that, you know, everyone, while everyone didn't always 100% agree with a decision that's made, everyone understood the the rationale behind it and could get behind that. Right. Well, it's interesting as we talk, it's becoming clear to me that you know, you said how much joining the committees and getting involved with research has made your life and your career, your profession more rewarding and exciting. And it's it's obviously the human working with people, the relationships in addition to you know, surgery. Oh, I mean, so that's very interesting. And I think that might get lost in today's world. But I can tell it's obviously been a, a huge part of, of your Absolutely, because I have no doubt that I would have burned out if my sole focus was my clinical work. Um, because every day it's like, I got to get this done. I got to get these cases done. You know, uh, they're expecting me to do these four today and I've got all these appointments to see, plus there's an emergency coming in and it, you just don't stop. Uh, I, I mean, obviously that varies from practice to practice and, and that's a choice that, you know, you as an individual surgeon plus the management of that practice makes. So I, I wouldn't say it's fair for me to paint that as a broad picture of how everyone's day to day life is. Uh, clinically, you know, the way that I had been working, but it was something that I, you know, I got used to. I don't think I would have maintained that, you know, level of work without having these other aspects for me. So in your clinical work, you're very busy, you're efficient, productive. I'm sure that took a while to to become that way, but can you share any tricks that really helped you? Well, I mean, first I would want to draw an important distinction between being fast and being efficient. Um, the goal, sh- the goal should never be to be, f- be fast in surgery. That, that is never the end goal. That's never the point. Um, it's not a competition. You know, there's no gold medal for coming in first uh, in terms of speed. But speed does come with efficiency, but but the efficiency isn't just you as a surgeon. Um, and and the sooner I think one recognizes that, the more efficient that you can be, and the happier you'll be. Um, I mean, everything from your front desk to your technicians and and your pack room and and then you um, is really important to making that efficient. But, but I think you know making certain that you really focus on recognizing it, your technicians and your pack room, and, and in many places those are one and the same. But in larger practices, they're separate. Um, but recognizing the the demands that are placed on them, um, and the demands that you personally are placing on them, how that affects how things get done. And really trying to understand, you know, the stresses that they're faced with and making them truly part of a team rather than thinking of them as what is, they're often labeled as support staff. And that, I mean, not only is that a little bit demeaning, it doesn't, it doesn't come close to identifying how important they are to making you efficient. And so, you know, for example, for me, Having certain pieces of equipment that aren't always there for me when I do a particular procedure, because not every surgeon uses the same thing for the same procedure, is if they know, okay, for these procedures, these are the other things you need to open for me, rather than having them scramble to look for them while I'm waiting for them, which you know is going to make you as a surgeon stressed, which is going to stress them out. So you know, taking the time and not only saying I'm going to need this, but take the time and say why. Um, you know, patient positioning, it, to me, that's huge. And that's one thing that could be a whole 
weak continuing education as far as I'm concerned for, for surgeons. I don't think anybody talks about that enough is un- understanding how positioning your patient so that you can most efficiently working on work on them. And this is mostly as it pertains to orthopedics, a little bit less so with soft tissue surgery. But patient positioning is key to, you know, you know, fracture repair, for example. I mean, how do you position this patient so you're not just fighting the fracture? Uh, you're fighting the fracture, but you're not having to fight gravity. Um, you're not standing on your head trying to fix something. You know, position it so that, you know, fracture repair could be hard enough. Make it as easy as possible. You're going to do a better job. Um, and I think having done a lot where I didn't have someone scrubbed in, that really helps teach you um, a, how to position them better. Um, so that when you do have someone scrubbed in with you, they can have more of a learning experience rather than simply being a retractor or someone who has to stay in a given position without breathing for an hour. Um, It's a a much more enjoyable experience for both. Uh, But I think, you know, the bottom line to answer your question is recognizing the team approach, letting them know what you're thinking. uh, And, then also like patient positioning to me is, is huge. I mean, one other thing that I didn't mention is looking at the big picture of the day and keeping an eye and ear out for when things are changing and being willing to change your plan based on, you know, um, the, uh, a situation report. Uh, you know, if there's, okay, I've got these four surgeries, but I know that there's a hemoabdomen coming in, um, you know, when's going to be the best time for me to put that between which two cases? Um, do we need to think about bumping a case? You know, I'm willing to work until eight or nine o'clock, but if I do that all the time, my staff is going to get burned out. Uh, and I want to show them that I respect their time as well. So uh, it's not always about packing the most number of the greatest number of cases you can into a day that may work out best financially for the practice, but keeping the same people and having the same team for years, nothing beats that. I mean, I, as you know, I just left a practice I was at for 23 years. Um, going into my last week of work, I got COVID. And so it could not work for my final week. I, I'm not a very emotional person. I cried, not knowing that I wasn't going to be able to say goodbye uh, to these people. They ended up you know, having a parade by my house before we left, which was wonderful. And I cried then too. So. <laughs> That's wonderful to hear. That's wonderful. That's what it's all about. What was your, fa- I mean, you've touched on it, but what was your favorite part of being a surgeon? I mean, what got you out of bed every well, day? Excited? I mean, really the everyday things were doing the things I really enjoyed doing from a surgical standpoint, but also having those other aspects of, of, of my professional career. Um, in terms of my involvement and the research. And again, not all of that's for everybody. If it's not for you, don't force yourself into, you know, into that um, because you think it's going to be fun. I mean, try it. And if it brings you fulfillment, then can continue to do it. I say professional fulfillment. My wife says that's a, uh, another term for ego, but uh, <laughs> to each his own. But for me, actually, over the last three or four years of my career, um, at very late in life, not until I was 49, so three and almost four years ago, um, I decided to uh, shoot for uh, getting commissioned in the Army, uh, in the Army Veterinary Corps. Uh, and I was able to commission at the age of 49. And from a surgical standpoint, I've done very little in the Army with regard to actual surgery, except when I went on a deployment uh, training mission uh, to Germany uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, and I've done probably close to 15,000 cruciate surgeries. Um, the, you know, dozen or so that I did when I was over there on, you know, military working dogs, uh, those were the best ones of my career. You know, I, I, I could not tell you how much I enjoyed doing that as well as, you know, some other surgeries, uh, you know, a back surgery and some others. Um, but that meant a lot to me because, you know, with regard to my, service within ACVS. In a sense, it was a little bit self-serving because I was helping an organization that helped my career. And I kind of always felt like I didn't give enough back 
beyond things that directly affected my career. And so that's what, you know, a big impetus with uh, joining the Army Reserves and trying to have an impact beyond myself and my immediate colleagues. Um, I don't know how much impact I've had, um, but I've really enjoyed it. And and for reasons beyond surgery, you know, working with uh, soldiers in, in my unit um, that have nothing to do with veterinary medicine, um, you know, just some of these young kids, it's just been great. Uh, it's been, you know, and again, that's not for everybody, but um, I've loved every minute of that. My wife hasn't loved it quite so much, but but I have. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, to do things like that or to do something like that is, um, it's a gift. It is. It and really people is. Say, you know, because when people hear that you're you know, doing that, they say, oh, thank you for your service. And, and I always thought about, well, what, what do I, how do you answer that? And, and, and my response, my fairly routine response is it, it's my privilege because it really is. I mean, I, I and, and again, just like the other things, you know, it may be that one of the things I've mentioned would be of interest or give fulfillment to some of the people who might listen to this. Um, and maybe none of it, maybe it's something else, but I do think there has to be something beyond purely driving yourself to do the maximum number of clinical cases per week for 30 years. There's got to be something else. And, and if it's management, then it's, then it's management. But if it's just one thing, I don't know how long you can be happy doing that. And I think you're right. The risk of burnout has just got to be so much higher. So you've had so many great experiences and rewarding aspects, and I'm thrilled to learn about uh, you know, working in Germany and, and all of the dogs and what they go through. Let me ask you this. How long were you in Germany? Oh, just for about a month. Okay. And so those were the dogs that were detecting mines and um, jumping out of planes. And So for military working dogs, the Army is the only branch that has a veterinary corps. And so we take care of the working dogs from Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, um, to some degree, depending on where you are, potentially Homeland Security and Coast Guard. So virtually all military working dogs have at least two certifications. Um, so there's patrol, which is basically bite work. Um, virtually all of them have are, are patrol certified. And then there's um, drugs um, or uh, explosives. Uh, so those are really the big three. So most dogs are at least dual certified. Um, and so, you know, all of them do at least patrol work and then either drugs or um explosives. I know there are a lot of organizations out there that are taking those dogs that have been in service and finding them good homes. I see that. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, so up until as recently as 2000, mm-hmm. once they retired military working dogs, up until about 2000, they were, they were euthanized after their useful service. Um, the, a law passed, it was actually signed by Clinton, um, that uh, you know, change that. Um, and then basically it, uh, the handlers have the right of first refusal. So any retired military working dog, the handlers get first, first shot if they want the dog, but before uh, it, when it's being retired, um, uh, basically it has to go through, you know, behavior testing to make sure that it would be, you know, potentially safe to be in, you know, a, you know, mm-hmm. non-military situation. Time. Now, if the, if the dog still, if it got injured and could no longer do bite work or explosive work, it could still go to civilian law enforcement and do drug work. Uh, so that is one possibility. Again, next is um, adoption by handler. Um, and then everything goes through Lackland Air Force Base. Uh, uh, regardless of what branch of service uh, the dog uh, was working in, um, and in terms of adoption, there's a long waiting list. Um, the main ones that tend to go to civilians are ones that fail uh, training as a puppy. And fewer than half the dogs that go into training uh, are successful. So fewer than half the dogs that start tra- training actually make it into service. Um, so th- the ones that don't, those are kind of the easiest ones to get adopted. Uh, and there's long, long waiting lists. And so I'm, I am always surprised when I see these, the groups that are promoting adoption of military working dogs, because 
from everything that I know, there's long lines of people wanting them. So um, I'm not exactly sure what a lot of that is about, to be honest with you. That's interesting. I did not know any of that. So I'm glad that you told me about that. Were most of the dogs Malinois? Yes. Yeah. That, that's by far and away. Um, I mean, there was one Rottweiler uh, that I did, uh, had a back surgery when I was over there. Uh, but Malinois, there was a German Shepherd or two that, uh, but then there were plenty, you know, there were a fair number in the kennels uh, that still German Shepherds, but Malinois, uh, you know, are, are the most common now. And despite the fact that they're leaner than a German Shepherd, they hit hard because they're fast and they, they, all, they, I mean, I'm not a big guy, but you know, they could knock me down going quarter speed. Oh, wow. Well, you've shared so much and you've been so generous with your insights. Um, it's been wonderful. And I know so many people are going to benefit from listening to our conversation. Is there anything else? I mean, do any other insights or advice that you have for surgeons? The only thing I can say is, you know, chances are, you pursued a residency because you wanted to be a good surgeon. And my fear is that people lose sight of that when they start looking toward the paycheck. Um, you don't want to be taken advantage of by an employer but and make less than what you're worth. But you, the focus has to somehow stay on growing as a surgeon, you know, in the, especially in the early part of your career, and it should always be on doing the right thing as a surgeon and for the right reasons. But, you know, the first six to 10 years of your career, just become the best surgeon that you could be. That's not naive, that that's what's going to give you fulfillment. Uh, that's what's going to help, you know, things will come, you do a good job, and, and things will come. Um, and it's easy to lose sight of that. And, you know, especially if you're getting paid based on production, it, it's really hard not to just go after that one more case. Just try to resist as long as you can and, and focus on being the best surgeon that you could possibly be. That's wonderful advice. Well, thank you. I've just enjoyed this so much. I really have. It's, it's just been invaluable. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Veterinary Career Services Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to ensure you never miss an episode. For feedback, questions, discussion topic requests, or if there is anything we can do for you, feel free to contact us at laura at vetcareerservices.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Veterinary Career Services Podcast.